clap. Welcome to Civil Discourses. I am your host, Megan Warren. I'm here with Dr. Forrest Neighbors. He is the author of From Oligarchy to Republicanism, The Great Task of Reconstruction. Um, this book won the American Political Science Association Award for Best Book in 2017. Um, so thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to write your book? Well, I'm a professor of political science, associate professor of political science, and chair of our department here at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Uh, I was a latecomer to academia. I was a high-tech executive for a while and then couldn't get rid of my love for books, so I went back to graduate school and got a doctorate in political science and then came here to Alaska and joined faculty here, and I've never looked back. I love my time in business, but uh, I, uh, I love this job more. It really is a calling. Um, about the book, where did the inspiration come from? That would be my professor when I was an undergraduate at Claremont McKenna College. I eventually took my degree from the University of Chicago, not Claremont, but uh, the, my professor there, Harry Jaffa, uh, was uh, a tremendous influence on me, and he had stayed with me through the years. Even when I was in business, I was in business for 10 years, and even then, when I was, uh, when I would pass through Los Angeles on business trips, I would always bundle in an extra day and go see the good professor and his wonderful wife, Mrs. Jaffa. And I would spend the day with him and we would just talk all day uh, until he fell asleep in his chair in the living room. And, and uh, but we stayed in touch like that. And my my goal always was to follow in his footsteps, pick up his work where he left off. And, um, and so I wanted to find out what happened to our country after, re after the, the American Civil War. His last book was A New Birth of Freedom, and it was about Abraham Lincoln and the coming of the Civil War. And I wanted to know, well, what happened to that New Birth of Freedom? So I began to study Reconstruction from Professor Jaffa's perspective. And uh, my findings surprised me. I didn't expect to discover what I found. And I remember when I was in graduate school working on my dissertation and uh, putting together all of these primary sources. And I, we, he and I talked, and I was telling him what I was finding. Uh, and he just encouraged me to keep going forward until I got it done. And, and all of that research that I did was very useful once I wrote this book. And uh, so I probably did enough research uh, uh, for that uh, dissertation to last me an entire career, <laughs> um, as some of you will find out who do go to graduate school. Um, and, uh, uh, but I just, I love my work. I love being with students in the classroom, and I love books, and I love discovering new things. And I have to say a, that uh, I also love this country, and um, you know, keeping Republicanism alive in America is, 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 is my mission. Very cool. Um, so how do you think Henry Clay himself fit into this early version of American Republicanism? Yeah, a very important figure. <laughs> 
Um, Lincoln said that Clay was his beau idée of a statesman. Um, Clay I categorize among um, a group of early American statesmen who were devoted to natural rights republicanism and although he was a slave owner, I, uh, he was opposed in principle, in the abstract, he was opposed to slavery. And for that reason, because there are so many like Clay in the early days of the founding, I've adopted the nomenclature of slave-holding abolitionists. Uh, that's what I uh, denominate Clay and the many like him during the founding era who were in fact born into slave ownership, uh, or I like to prefer to say slave-holding because I don't believe, as Madison did not, that man has right to own property in man. But um, his type, the, the uh, you know, Clay's type was decisive in establishing republicanism in this country. And his, but unfortunately in the American South, his type died out in the decades leading up to the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. um, the sons and grandsons of that generation began to turn against those early principles uh, and, and began to wholly embrace oligarchy and slavery and really repudiated Clay's legacy. Leg uh, Clay lived a long time and lasted uh, and all the way up to the Compromise of 1850. Did everything he could from the Missouri Compromise to the Compromise of 1850 to try to hold the Union together and try uh, to do everything he could to limit the, the spread of slavery while, um, um, while, while at, at the same time conceding some demands to the, the emerging um, uh, pro-slavery statesman, uh, which was, that was a very difficult tightrope to walk, but he walked it well and, and ably. So let's move a little bit into local issues. So you have been a very vocal opponent of Dunleavy's budget cuts, uh, particularly to the UA system. Um, and you have been kind of a ringleader against Jim Johnson's move to consolidate the three UA campuses. Right. Um, so that reached national headlines um, at the brink of it. And in InsideHigherEd.com, you're quoted on your statement, our belief is that when we become independent institutions, our competition will be healthy and that each of us will be more responsive to the market and each concentrate on our strengths. So can you speak a little bit more about Dunleavy's budget in general um, and your work on countering President Johnson's plans to consolidate? Right. Um, well, uh, on the surface, the, the question of higher education funding and the structure of governance and administration of your public university system seem to be unrelated, but they are not. Um, you know, the, the governor in our state, in Alaska, wanted to, um, I think, pressure the university to reform. And so his initial number uh, you know, the amount of funds that he, he uh, intended to authorize to, uh, to the university system here 
was a substantial cut. It was a $135 million net cut. Um, and I think what his hope was that that would stimulate a whole bunch of activity on, on, the, si on the university system side that would lead to more efficiencies. I think that was a mistake if, if in fact, his goal was to try to pressure the university to uh, become more efficient, it was a mistake to do it that way. Um, because you can't just throw a number over the fence and expect a good result. You, you, have, to main, you have to have a vision of what you want from, um, you know, from the university system. And he never really quite worked that out. And I, I was hopeful that he would moderate the cuts and give the university system time to reform the structure of governance and administration, which ultimately is our problem. Um, the Constitution of the state of Alaska, like many constitutions around uh, uh, the country, hardwired uh, a board of regents and a president into our state constitution. <coughs> and so they put provisions in our state constitution that said that the University of Alaska shall be governed by a board of regents and by a president. But at the time in 1956, when those provisions were placed into the Alaska state constitution, the University of Alaska was less than a thousand students on one campus in Fairbanks. Right? And likewise, in the state of California in their 1879 constitution, their Article 9, I believe it was, that um, in, in their, in their co state constitution also hardwired a board of regents and a, and a president for the University of California. But the University of California at that time just had a few dozen graduates. The uh, Nevada state constitution also in, their, in theirs, um, uh, they hardwired a board of regents and a system chief as well, even before they had, a, they had founded uh, the University of Nevada at Reno. Um, and what happened in all of these three states and in others is that the university system grew out of a single campus university. And that system of governance and administration, one board of regents and one president, it does not work over an entire university system. In our country, we believe in self-government. We believe, and you know this from being having been my student, uh, and when we, when we uh, talk about federalism, we, uh, we mean that, you know, our, our founders understood that you have to push the powers of government down as far as you possibly can in order to preserve self-government of the republic in all of its parts. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but when you hardwire a board of regents and a president into your constitution, and then the university system grows, um, how do you push those powers down? You're blocked by those constitutional provisions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we've been experiencing here in Alaska. And in fact, the state of Nevada experienced that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, uh, you know, beginning in the 1950s, university systems have been trying to decentralize or devolve power down to the local level. Some of these, most of these movements have been successful and uh, this movement here in the state of Alaska, which I do have a, some uh, role in, in uh, is, is also underfoot here. So w that's what we're really aiming for. We think that if you decentralize the university system, 
that the university system is going to govern itself better, uh, both in terms of its financial performance and in producing better research and education. Excellent. Um, so kind of in that similar vein, um, I think I've heard you mention this idea before, but how would you feel about Alaska adapting its framework um, to make it more similar to Texas, where oil revenue is used to subsidize uh -huh. higher education? Um, and do you think that would be a better use than the permanent fund dividend that Alaskans receive every year? Very good question. <laughs> and I wish you had asked that question in the 1970s when the oil spigot was turned on in this state because uh, the University of Texas, for example, their endowment is $26 billion. That's mm -hmm. billion with a B. Mm -hmm. Our endowment is $200 million with an M. <laughs> you know, so, Significant uh, difference. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's a huge difference. And the reason for it is that the University of Texas um, used their oil revenues to beef up their endowment. We never did that. We depended upon annual appropriations from the state, and uh, because of that, our, our endowment is paltry. And unfortunately, not only do we have a paltry endowment, but we also have a uh, deferred maintenance bill that is five times the size of our endowment. It's $1 billion. So, you know, to those who want to centralize the structure of our university system even further, which is what they're trying to do right now, uh, look at their financial performance. Look at how that system of governance and administration has performed over the prior decades. It has given posterity a $200 million endowment and a deferred maintenance bill for our crumbling buildings that need repair, that is five times. So it, it is, they've left a paltry endowment and a hefty bill. And so it's not really believable that this same system of governance and administration is going to perform better financially in the future if uh, we centralize the university even more. Mm -hmm. We need to go in a different direction. We need to practice good old American principles and devolve power down to the local level at the universities. Give every university their own board of trustees, their own endowment, their own foundation. Give them control over their alumni. Give them uh, the authority to make final decisions on uh, programs and services and let the Board of Regents you know, uh, uh, focus on pol general policy and uh, government compliance only. And then you'll, what you will see is improved management at the university systems and so on. But, you know, the, oil, the question about oil revenues, we missed the boat decades ago. We might have, we, we, you know, the university could have, could have had a much better endowment mm -hmm. that would, we could have relied upon mm -hmm. in difficult financial times like this. Something like our permanent fund here in the state of Alaska. Our endowment could have worked the same way. And then it could have, the dividends from that, uh, from that endowment would have helped supplement our budget here at, in, in the university <clears throat> instead of having to, you know, beg, uh, you know, for some of the permanent fund dividend mm -hmm. that's paid out to the citizens of Alaska. So I think your, your question is an apt one, and it really points to mistakes that were made by legislators and, uh, and governors in prior decades 
and in and and most importantly in the board of regents and the, and the president in prior decades they should have argued strenuously for uh you know for uh, oil revenues um or for at least some kind of a share to beef up our endowment they never did that mm -hmm. and uh here we are but <clears throat> this opportunity may not be gone entirely because uh in a few years we're probably going to turn the spigot oil spigot <clears throat> uh back on you know with the new uh discoveries and, and you know around the state and new opportunities to um you know uh, to exploit oil uh, when that when those discoveries go into production you know we could see an increase in the flow of oil and in that case, I would I hope that we will put ourselves in a position to have part of that go into our endowment. It's so, not the oil, the money from the oil. So just <laughs> a little bit of a question about oil revenues. Do you think it's healthy for Alaska's economy to rely so heavily on oil revenues? No, I don't. And uh, to be honest with you, I think that um, the, I'm not I don't have political office right now, so I can say this. But I think uh, oil, in, in, in some way, um, you know, oil has slowed our econ economic growth. Or I should say it's, it's definitely slowed the diversification mm -hmm. of our economy. And the reason for it is because um, oil is so profitable that it biases reinvestment towards it. It biases reinvest, uh, investments in human capital as well as finance capital towards it. Um, and what that means is because everybody was looking to profit in some way, either through their employment or through, uh, you know, by develop, developing a business for ancillary oil, you know, services in the oil sector, the petroleum sector, or, you know, outside finance capital coming in and investing in oil production. It, what it has meant is that investments of human capital and finance capital that might otherwise have been directed towards entrepreneurial development and the development of other economic sectors that might help diversify the uh, Alaska economy. We haven't made those investments. Mm -hmm. um, so oil is a mixed blessing because it does provide a cash surplus over the short term. The problem with it is that oil, you know, uh, if, if you're a single resource economy, you, you are entirely dependent upon that single resource. Mm -hmm. And diversified economies are much better. Um, and we've never really diversified. So, uh, you know, as a former high tech uh, executive who ran with venture back um, uh, high tech companies, uh, you know, it's been some it's it's been frustrating to see the influence of oil in this state mm -hmm. um, and it, it's and that's why you know in my sort of spare time I still try to work with Alaska entrepreneurs and help source capital for them and and my friends and I have put together a small venture capital firm that places funds in new companies and that sort of thing um, and uh, to try to uh, uh, break out of this cycle of oil dependency mm -hmm. um, and you know uh, and we see what happens when we go through a downturn in the price of oil everybody suffers you know ever since 2014 oil went from over a hundred dollars a barrel to 25 dollars a barrel 
and we all took it in the chin. Um, and, and we've been, um, I think we have one of the highest unemployment rates in the country right now here in Alaska. <coughs> Not good. Not good. <laughs> okay, so to segue a little bit into national politics. Sure. Um, we're still going to maintain a focus on Alaska, though. So recently, the Trump administration diverted military construction funds mm -hmm. um, in Alaska to the southern border um, mm -hmm. to help fund the wall. What do you think about this decision? And um, what do you think, of, in general, about the <coughs> construction of the southern border wall? Um, well, what do you think about that, Megan? What do I think about that? <laughs> I think that it is... Um, a bad allocation of our resources. I think that there are many things to work on for immigrants, mm -hmm. um, particularly court systems. The immigration court system could use a lot of funding. I think that the allocation of funding could be placed mm -hmm. in other areas. Yeah, for me, I guess uh, I would start with how do you, how do you, would you go about answering that question? Well, what is, how important is the infrastructure, the military infrastructure here in Alaska that will not be funded now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what those projects are, so I don't know how vital they are to national security. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I can't really speak to that. Um, the value of border security, I, well, how, how would you rate the value of border security? The value of border security yeah. is very low on my priority list uh -huh. right now. So, I, I don't think we're having an immigration crisis, which is uh -huh. Well, do are, are you aware of the latest study? There, there's been some uh, questions thrown on the last big study that came out about, mm, I think it was three months ago, roughly, that estimated 30 million foreigners here in the country without sanction of U.S. law. Is, that's not important? I wouldn't say it's not important. I would just rate it lower on my priority list than other uh -huh. issues. I yeah. think that it's been made a very large talking point that I don't think genuinely deserves as much attention as it's getting. Yeah, okay. Yeah, for me, uh, well, since uh, I was unfair and I turned the question, it's only fair that we turn it back around on me then. So I, I will uh, offer up my thoughts on that. You know, to me, the, the, you know, the question of immigration is, you know, more, I disagree with both of the left and the right on this. Um, <clears throat> you know, this shouldn't be a question, you know, the question of immigration should not, uh, we, don't, we should not care about the uh, economic condition of people who are coming into this country. Uh, the whole, and, and this is my criticism of the right, the whole premise of our country is that the real wealth that human beings carry with them is in their person, and are not is not the the amount of well, is not the wealth that they have or have not piled up. That's their real wealth is in their human person because um, nature, being uh, 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 you know operating the way that she does, uh, gives human talent to the highborn and the lowborn, and it's a beautiful thing. You could have a child of a desperately poor immigrant come into this country um, who is wonderfully talented. Give that child an education and see what they can do. And that's the promise of America, is that 
um, is that people can rise. Mm -hmm. Under conditions of perfect liberty, people have that opportunity to rise. And seeing that happen is, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's, that is what fulfills the promise of this country. But I will say in criticism of the left is that uh, I think the left is too indifferent to assimilation. Um, and in, you know, in, when we, when we um, assess our, our immigration policy, we, we absolutely should take into account how well, are we, how well is our assimilation engine working. And um, I'm worried about our assimilation engine right now. Our schools are not, uh, in my view, uh, really teaching good citizenship and all the things that young citizens should know um, uh, before they matriculate into maturity and become voters and jury, you know, and, and members of a jury and members of the armed forces and so on. I mean, we, the, the strength of a nation is in its union. And then here's where I disagree with the left. They say our strength is in our diversity. No, it's not. Our strength is in our is in union. Union of the things, you know. The, our motto is a pluribus unum, from many one, um, not from one many, as Al Gore once misinterpreted, misread the Latin in a lengthy speech. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so. Are we creating that union? Is our assimilation creating that union grounded in the great principles of our country and found in the Declaration of Independence? Is it? And not only that, but are we actually, are we checking to make sure that immigrant groups who come into this country um, have sort of, they're coming from cultures that are assimilable, right? Uh, you could take a hypothetical and say, if there is such a culture that practices a form of religion, let's say headhunting, uh, you know, there, uh, that, that admits and even requires headhunting, right? um, how do you assimilate those people to the principles of the Declaration of Independence that says, that claims that all members of the human family are have uh, equally endowed with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those things are irreconcilable. We are afraid now to judge whether or not uh, to judge cultures from whence immigrants come. Now, we are in a fortunate situation in that most of the immigrants coming into this country are from Latin America. and. Um, I've spent a lot of time down there. I have close, the closest of relations, personal relations uh, with Latin America and, uh, and particularly with Mexico. Wonderful people. Their problems have to do more to do with their political institutions, um, but they easily can you know, make it in this country and become part of our American family of citizens. No problem. Um, the difficulty right now is in number. This is another important element of our assimilation uh, uh, machine that we have to attend to, which is um, the number that the assimilation engine uh, can, assimil can assimilate at once. And right now those numbers are seem awfully high. When you have 30 million foreigners living in the country, 
without sanction, sanction of law, we have lost our ability to assimilate them. The danger is that rather than assimilating foreigners into our family of American citizens, we are instead um, allowing foreigners to s extend the borders of their country into ours. Okay? Um, and, you know, and if that's the case, then what we're, we're doing is balkanizing our country and destroying the foundation of unity. The power of a nation the, uh, is not in its armies or in its will. It's in the moral character of, of uh, the moral, and I, and I mean this in the classical sense, sort of the moral attributes of a people. Mm -hmm. And so patriotism and union among the people is really important. And I'm afraid that we're, uh, so whereas for you, it's not that important for me, it's up close to the top of the list right now. Mm -hmm. And it really, it, it concerns me. Um, uh, on the other hand, I, you know, the assimilation engine is very powerful. It's hard to know how to measure it and to know how it's doing well. Um, and we see examples all around us of, of, you know, foreigners who have come here, who have assimilated really well um, and have done great things for our country. Uh, and that's, that's heartening. Um, but uh, but what about those who have not assimilated? And what about those, how many are there? How many are there who come into this country who just see it as my own personal opportunity to take advantage of the freedom of this country to work and so on? But I really, in fact, I hate this country, right? And when people are waving foreign flags in American cities and stopping traffic in mobs, um, you know, that is mm -hmm. concerning. Yeah. And I, I don't know how you measure that, but yeah. um, but that is that is a concern. Interesting perspective. Um, so <laughs> she doesn't this she doesn't agree, folks. <laughs> I don't know. And she's afraid to debate I me. I think no. I think I mean you say waving foreign flags. I mean people yeah. still wave the Confederate flags. I think that's just as much of an of issue as is. waving foreign of flags. But anyways, it's it's there. and many and it's it's just as I yeah. mean I'm against that too. Yeah. So, anyways, wrapping up. I think that we're pretty close to time now. Okay. So Maybe she's, after my immigration comment, <laughs> she's done with me. No, we have to wrap up. I wish we didn't. I wish we could talk all day, honestly. Um, but this is a question that we're going to ask all of our guests. So, okay. how do you think that we can increase bipartisan discourse in the country and mend the polarized climate yeah. that we're currently experiencing? Very good question. I haven't much thought about remedies, but I don't think the problem is um, maybe as terrible as advertised, because I really do think the American people fundamentally like each other. And I really don't think that uh, we, the American people themselves, are as divided as we are led to believe we are. It may be the political class and, you know, professional, and that includes journalists. You know, they're all on a mission to own the other side, so to speak, and, and you know to win political debates and so on. But you know, the American people, yeah, they can have their political convictions and they might even hold them strongly. But you know, when we're together and um, when there's a car accident and you see people getting out, they don't ask what your political affiliation is to help. 
you know, and I, I do believe the American people are fundamentally kind and well disposed towards each other. And it is painful. Um, I, I will say this much that um, because our political theater is so divisive, um, it, it pains me just because, you know, the American people can't, don't, they, they are afforded fewer opportunities to actually be together and enjoy the family of citizens that we ought to. Um, but I, 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 I'm, at least I'm hopeful in my, my own view of the American people themselves uh, and, and, in my, and my view of them uh, gives me hope uh, that, that we will overcome this eventually and you know, people will settle down. I, but I, remedies, so how do, you, how do you make that happen? I guess doing events like this uh, more of them, and having debates. Mm -hmm. You know, having debates between people who fervently disagree, um, but who genuinely like each other, and doing it more, doing it on social media, uh, or you know, posting it on social media. And uh, I don't know. I mean, one time I, I I had I'm too busy, so I never followed through on this. But I had the, the this idea of starting up a move. Maybe somebody out there can do this. Starting up on Twitter. A civility movement where everybody agrees that if anyone insults or throws invective around or anything, that we just respond with, you know, have a nice day, God bless you, whatever, and really mean it. And and really, and that, you know, every time we can sort of win somebody over to the other side on social media um, uh, and, and, uh, and get them at least to see that we respectfully disagree, uh, that that's a win. That's mm -hmm. a big win for civility, even if we don't convince them, but we just we stubbornly adhere to not taking the bait, not fight, hitting back, and, and no matter how tough the insults come, and you just hold to the argument and, and you just keep explaining, this is why I believe what I believe. And then, so what we could do on Twitter is have a patch of some sort that says, you know, I am a pledged member <laughs> of the Civility Brigade. Civility and, Brigade, I like Yeah, that. the Civility Brigade. And I'm going to wear that patch, you know, and, uh, and we have a website that describes it. It says, you know, our sort of code of conduct. And, uh, you know, we can fall off the wagon uh, sometimes. And uh, that happens, I, you know, I love my kids, but sometimes I do get a, a, a little more frustrated than I should. <laughs> and then I try to, but I make amends, I apologize and come back. And we should do that on social media too. Yeah. That may be a way, and I, because people like other people who are civil, even though, you know, if, if I lose my cool and you respond in a measured way towards me and, and I see that you're, making an effort to respond in a measured way. If I'm just a halfway decent person, I'm gonna appreciate that. And you know what, you are gonna score big points with me because later I'm gonna realize, gee, Megan, I, I was unfair with her. I breathed fire on her and she just, you know, blew me a kiss back. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, and, and that, 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 that I'm gonna, next time around, I'm gonna, that's gonna change me. Mm -hmm. That's how we change each other. And, uh, you know, you're, it doesn't work sometimes, but I think it works a lot. And I've actually done that on Twitter when I, 
uh, and started uh, was spending a little bit more on Twitter than I probably should have. You know, I did that with a few people, mm-hmm. and it did work. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, and I thought, gosh, you know, we can make the world a better place one person at a time that way. And if we start a civ- the civility brigade, somebody out there. Hashtag uh, civil discourse. Yeah. Hashtag civil discourse, hashtag civility brigade. <laughs> Somebody invent the patch and let's put it out on Twitter. I'll sign up. I'll Megan sign will up. sign up. I'll will sign you up. sign up too? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So we'll, you've got so two sign-ups already yeah. for the civility brigade. <laughs> and, uh, and and that's that may be my best idea on short notice. <laughs> it's a good idea. We like it. Henry Clay Center. I like the civility discourse. Um, well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. It was great. Um, great to see you, too. And good luck in law school, Megan. Thank you. Thank you very Sue much. Sue them all. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yes, yes, we do. Yay. Okay, great. We did it.